So let's have a word of prayer. <laughs> Dear Lord, we give you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for everything that you've done for us, God. We give you this morning, and I pray, Lord, that we will draw closer to you and our hearts will be open for what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I get... Is there an echo? So I'm, I apologize. <laughs> Having technical issues. <laughs> um, I wanted to start it today by opening up with a huge thank you on behalf of the Hogan family. Um, if you're not aware, my cousin Darcy was the coach of the Humboldt Broncos, and he was one of the 16 people who died when a semi collided with their hockey bus. Uh, I must tell you that the outpouring of prayers over this last couple of weeks has been tremendous, and the outpouring of the, that support and encouragement has been truly immense. And I can't start to tell you how God has been our comfort and our refuge during this time. Uh, I'm truly grateful that we have a Savior and that he conquered death so that we can have an eternity with him. And I'm going to touch a bit later on in the sermon about that. But as you know, the Humboldt Broncos were a hockey team. And today we're going to be talking about prayer. So keeping in this vein... I wanted to be uh, go along the vein of a hockey morning, I guess you could say. And I, I, I was reminded, too, of my deep roots in hockey. Because I, I grew up on a pair of skates. My dad was bound and determined that I would be an awesome hockey player. But I just became a hockey player. <laughs> there was no awesomeness to it. But I enjoyed the game. And my dad actually is turning 80 in September, and he still plays hockey on a weekly basis. Yeah, he's pretty awesome. Good guy to look up to. Um, he loves it, and I started to love the game, too. And we would play in our driveways all the time with anything that we could get our hands on, whether that be a tennis ball, one of those orange hard balls. We could even, like, get pine cones or balls of rolled tape or even hockey pucks themselves. But we kept on playing in our driveway. We kept on playing hockey, and it was so much fun. Um, I didn't have a video game system at the time. I've never owned one. The only time I owned one is when my youth group gave me one and my wife thought it was an espresso machine. <laughs> um, much to her chagrin, I had to inform her otherwise. But I, we always enjoyed those times. And if you actually came to my house in Kamloops and looked at the actual garage door, you would see all the dents that are in our garage door. And that was from my childhood, my upbringing too. And my, my father wanted to encourage me to use my stick and use the puck and use those different things all the time. And he knew I would become a better player if I used my stick more. And in the game of hockey, the, the hockey stick in and of itself is intricate to the game. And if you don't have a stick, you simply cannot play. If you remember the Canucks old jersey, it simply had a hockey stick and a puck on it. And for people who live in Canada, you know that those two pieces of equipment are the basic tools you need to play the game. And there are moments in the game when you have to kill a penalty. You've seen those tense moments and the voices get smaller and smaller and it gets more and more intense and those two minutes seem like a lifetime. And the worst thing that can happen during those times 
is you break a stick. Instead of going from a five on four, you go to a three on five, and it's like losing a man. It's like losing a person on the ice. And I would contend that praying is in the same vein and is as vital as a hockey stick is in hockey. You cannot be the church of God without the element of prayer in your worship. So if prayer is so vital, how should we pray as a church? So I'm glad you asked. In 1 Timothy 2, 1-7, we find out, and this is the passage that we're going from. Um, William read uh, 1 to 15, but we're just going 1 to 7 today, and Brian's going to pick up the slack after. So. <laughs> so, in this passage, if you want to look up this with me, or you want to look up on the screen, or on your, your phones, just follow with me. And in this passage, Paul implores the church of Ephesus to pray for all people. He instructs the church how to pray congregationally as a part of their worship. And Paul says this. He says, I urge you, first of all, that petitions... <coughs> Prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving have made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all people, this is now witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So in the first verse here, we see how to pray as a church. And an easy way to remember this, I remember um, all the different elements of prayer through the acronym ACTS. There's adoration, there's confession, there's thanksgiving, and there's supplication. And so there's different elements. First of all, A, we adore God. We tell him how much we appreciate him. We glorify his name. Secondly is confession. And through our confessions, we lay down our lives. And we lay down our sins and basically anything that in our lives that could get in the way between us in God, and so we can hear God more clearly through our asking of forgiveness. So that's A and C. And the T is for thanksgiving. We thank God for what he is doing and what he's going to do. And through this lens, we start to see God alive and active in this world. And we see his movement and his existence, and we see him all around us. Our eyes are opened to what God is doing. And he is alive, and he is with us today. And finally, we go to S, which is supplication. And we give all our cares, and we give all our concerns and our petitions, and we lift up those in our lives that affect us or potentially could. We, affect, we lift up everybody. And so this brings me to verse 2, which is we pray for all of those in authority, meaning our government leaders, our deacons, this church, and we go to work for Jesus because we want no conflict. We want peace in order to do so. And so we pray for those different people. And God is the mover of hearts. We are not. And we can't do it alone. So we turn to the one that can do it. 
And this doesn't mean those people in power and authority have to line up with our beliefs, but we're actually inviting God into the conversation. We're showing him that those things matter and those things care. When Paul was writing this back in Rome, he actually, there was no leaders that actually aligned with his Christian beliefs. There was nobody before that. But he thought it was important to petition God in order to bring him a part of the equation. And we so we do this together congregationally through worship, through our prayers. And so the question might come up after we've prayed for these government authorities, why we as a church should continue to petition God for those who don't believe in him. It might seem like a simple question, but it's not. It's because we have a desire and a concern for them, and so does God. He literally wants all people to come to a knowledge and understanding of the truth, which is his truth. And you might have sung this at Sunday school. It just came to my mind while I was writing this out. Uh, the song, Don't Build Your House on Sandy Land, Don't Build It Too Near the Shore, because it might be kind of nice, but you're going to have to build it twice. You're going to have to build your house once more. you got to build your house upon a rock. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> build a firm foundation on a solid spot, for the rains may come and go, but the peace of God you will know. And God's desire is for all people to build their lives upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ. And as a church, we need to have that same desire to reach out to those people on the sandy land who continually rebuild their lives and adapt to the storms of life. Just because we have a solid foundation in Christ does not mean we shouldn't have a concern for those around us. And we shouldn't rest on our laurels in that sense because God has saved us. But that saving grace is for this world. And this world is getting beat up. We need to care. God's desire is to save all. It should be the churches as well. And that should reflect in our prayers. And what we pray together shows what we care about. And we need to think deeply about that. Because I would hate it if we became so godly that we were of no earthly use. This line of thought led me to think about comfort. And what I like to do to find comfort is probably, you know, I get home from a hard day's work, um, I turn on the TV, I kick up my feet on my recliner and relax. You know, that's ideal. You know, I this doesn't happen so much because I have a very active family that comes and um, interrupts that, but I really appreciate those things too. But that's what I would do when I was relaxing, and th those are the things that I would find comfort in. Um, but did you know that the most dangerous household item and the one with the highest rate of injury in people's homes is the recliner? Insurance statistics show that more injuries due to are due to a recliner than any home household appliance, or piece of furniture. This is the most dangerous thing in your house. People's fingers get sliced off in those little steel things on the side. It's deadly. <laughs> this also serves to show as well, as a reminder as a church, we need not trade in that lazy boy and come boldly to the throne of God through Jesus. We need to trade it in. 
Coming together does not mean comfort. It doesn't mean a holy huddle. It doesn't mean a place to steal away. This is a place where lives are changed. God is alive and people come alive in his power. And this church is a beacon, but we are not an island to ourselves. We are in the world to make a difference, and we are enabled through the power of the Holy Spirit to do just that. And this is profound, and don't forget that. I would implore us to not forget the mission while we do church. We have a responsibility to the world to share the message of Jesus Christ, because Christ first loved us, so we love others. And this is what brings joy to the heart of God, as it says in verse 3. As I continue on in verses 5 and 6, it says this. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So the reason we pray for all people is not just because Jesus loves everyone. It is because Christ's death concerns all people. You see, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross paved the way in which we can be saved. God's concern for all people put into motion his plan of redemption. And Jesus came to this earth based on God's concern, but it culminated through Jesus' sacrifice. And amongst his care, we see the cost, and that cost was death, even death on a cross. And this death was so horrific, you wouldn't want to give that to your worst enemy. But it was through his life-giving sacrifice that he became our mediator. He became our redeemer. He paid the price, a ransom for all, so at the appointed time, we might become his righteousness. And it's only through Jesus Christ that one might be saved. It's only through his actions that we gain his redemption. And Jesus followed through. He is the only one that can save. And by his wounds, we are healed. I find it interesting that at the end of verse 6, it finishes off by saying, this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Was he referring to the time in which Jesus died? Was this exactly the right time in God's plan for humanity? Or was this referring to the future and the witness of his people? I would contend at this point, yes and yes. Jesus came at the right time, according to his plans, to be the redemption for all. But we are his witnesses. And this means we continue on in that mission to tell the world about Jesus Christ. As my commentary put it, it said, the universal concern of the church arises from the universal concern of God. And it's because there is one God and one meteor that all people must be included in the church's prayers and proclamations. It is the unity of God and the uniqueness of Christ which demand the universality of the gospel. And God's desire and Christ's death concern all people. Therefore, the church's duty concerns all people too, reaching out to them both in earnest prayers and in urgent witness. And at this point, I started looking to the people that played big roles 
in the church as time went on. And I find it interesting that as a young man, the person Paul, the person who wrote Timothy, on the road to Damascus met God and turned from persecuting Christians to proclaiming his message. And then at that point, Paul took on the cause and started on his missionary journeys to the Gentiles, meaning from the Jews to the rest of the world. On his first missionary journey, he met up with two people. And those two people were Eunice and Lydia. They heard the message of Jesus and believed. As it happens, these women were the mother and grandmother of Timothy, with whom the book is entitled that we are studying today. And it's because of this belief in Jesus that they raised Timothy, rooted in the solid foundation of God's truth. And as Timothy was being raised in the truth of Jesus, he raised, he grew to be noticed by Paul as a potential leader. From then on, Paul took Timothy on his missionary adventures, learning from Paul's example. In other words, Paul was discipling Timothy. And that is how Timothy became a leader in the church of Ephesus. And when Paul dies two years after penning 1 Timothy in Rome, Timothy carries on the message of Jesus Christ based on the instruction Paul gives through his letters. You can see how Jesus sparked a chain reaction that began with his death and continued with all who believe. From Jesus to Paul, Eunice, and Lydia, then to Timothy, you see how the gospel message, the good news, carries on. And this will be witnessed to everyone at the proper time, from then till now, from here to eternity. And when I was going through this, I started to see how we fit into the picture and what it means to be Jesus' witnesses for the truth and for this world. I remember that I was talking to my dad as we were driving, flying all the way to Humboldt this past weekend, what a, a legacy of faith looks like. He told me of my great-grandma, Anderson, who would pray continually for her family in the world. And if there was anybody that was a prayer warrior, it was her. And then he talked about my grandpa and Grandma Hogan, which is great-grandma Anderson's daughter, who became believers at a big tent revival on the plains of Saskatchewan. And the faith was instilled in their 14 kids. And through those 14 kids, which my dad is number four, I came to my own faith in Jesus at a breakfast table when I was seven years old during a morning devotional of our daily bread. And I'm not the only one to partake in this legacy as well. I have 50 first cousins from those 14 kids from the Hogan farm. And one of those being Darcy Hogan that died in the bus accident I referred to earlier. See, Darcy took on the message of Jesus Christ. He was a hockey coach that understood that character determines success, but the character needs to be rooted in Jesus. And throughout the last week, his life song and his death was risen louder than we could have ever possibly imagined. It shouted, don't look at me, look at Jesus. 
We've been inundated these last couple of weeks by the gospel message through the story of Darcy's life, on our social media feeds, our newspapers, and by stories of his players. And it's such an amazing thing to see how a horrific tragedy became the light to the hope that Jesus brings. And it lives on. Darcy is survived by his wife and two sons, Carson and Jackson. And my uncle Leroy, who is Darcy's dad, said there was a moment when people were starting to be informed about the extent of the losses in Humboldt and the reality of the situation was starting to take hold. People were grieving at a church where they were gathered and the grief was almost too much for words and they knew Darcy didn't make it and it was time to go home. And Auntie Shirley, who's Darcy's mom, said to Leroy, you need to pray. And Leroy was grief-stricken, and he said he couldn't. And at that moment, Darcy's son, Carson, who's 12 years old, said, I'll pray, Papa. He said, my dad wouldn't want us to give up on Jesus. and Because of this, we're not going to. And then he prayed. To the one who makes sense out of the confusion, the one we place all our pain and sorrow, to the one who brings joy and a hope for eternity, to him we place our trust, in him we find our strength, and we bless his name. Because you never know how far our, go our prayers are going to go, do we? As we pray for everyone, and we care the way Jesus cared, cared enough to sacrifice his life, we are his witnesses until the end of the age because you never know. One day at our funeral, we may have the prime minister show up and have the proceedings broadcast to all of Canada and the gospel of Jesus heard throughout the whole country. That's what happened this last week. You see, our prayers and our lives matter. What we do matters regardless of what comes. We have a hope in Jesus. <laughs> Darcy had a profound effect in the 15,000 days he had on this earth, give or take. It was between 1975 and 2018. And he is with Jesus in eternity in a better place. But in those 15,000 days, that dash between those dates, that he made the impact for Jesus. And my question for you today is, what will we use our dash for? As a church and individually, if we exemplify the legacy of faith that has been set out before us, we will truly become a beacon of hope. And I'm so glad Ferris had that song, All Our Hope Is In Jesus. All Our Yesterdays Are Gone. Jesus has given us forgiveness and redemption. And we're not the same. There's no going back. And as a congregation, we stand together, we pray, and we petition. We want this world to know Jesus Christ. And that's our hope, and that's our desire for this world. That's Christ's desire. And so let those two things align. What will you use your dash for? The church's prayer should concern all people. Because God's desire concerns all people. And because Christ's death concerns all people. That is why the church's proclamation 
must be for everyone. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this morning, we look to you with our prayers and our petitions. We adore you, God. You've given us so much. And we confess that sometimes our desires and your desires do not line up. But I pray, Lord, that this morning, that they would this morning, that we would fall at your feet and ask for forgiveness and give us a new heart to go after you, to spread the gospel to this world. I pray that we would have a a mighty impact for you, God, in this community in White Rock. I pray for our leaders and those people in power that they would see that hope. They've heard the word, God. And so I pray that you would just puncture their hearts so it explodes with love for you. And so, God, this morning, we are so thankful that you move hearts. And I pray for miracles, and I pray for healing. I pray that we believe all of these things can happen through the power of your Spirit, God. And we give all of these things to you. And we are different through the redemption of your Son, God. And so I pray we lean on you and not our own understanding this morning, God. We give you our hearts, because you're all that matters from now into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.